Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thanks for joining me for another week. Jeez, that opening song's catchy. I still can't get it out of my head after all these weeks. Thanks again to Benny Walker for allowing us to use that track. There's more information in the show notes if you want to be able to hear a bit more of Benny's music. So stoked you tuned in for this conversation because it's one of my favourite ones so far. This kid, Jared Clifford, just 18, um, has an amazing story and has an amazing attitude towards life and really really inspirational um so well spoken achieved some amazing things for such a young age and just has an amazing attitude towards life and it was one of those conversations that i was really valued to have and really grateful that jared uh said it was okay to talk to him and get him on the podcast so really grateful for him giving up some time jared is a paralympian he's been to the olympics He's just finished third, got the bronze medal in the World Championships last month in the 1500, and he is a speedster. He's fast, and he's going to be a name to hear about in the future, no doubt. Enjoy this chat, guys, uh, with Jared. Be sure to reach out to him on social media to uh, let him know you heard him here, and yeah, really enjoy it. Cheers, guys. Jared Clifford, welcome to Tell Me Your Tales podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're. Um, I was just going through a bit of research before, and you're definitely the youngest member of the uh, podcast guest I've had on, and I reckon the only member still in school. So that's quite an achievement, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, I'll take that one. Oh, but in saying that, you've uh, your list of achievements are just as big as everybody else that I've had on the podcast. So um, age is definitely no barrier for you. Yeah, yeah, I've always kind of. You know, throwing age away and just, yeah, whoever's, I mean, running, it's just, uh, we all do it. It's all the same kind of motion and I just like getting in there and giving it a go and age doesn't really intimidate me much. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think many things intimidate you, which we'll get into later on in the conversation, but um, did you want to maybe just give the guests, a bit, or not the guests, give the audience a bit of uh, context about who you are and maybe introduce yourself? Yeah, no worries. So um, my name is Jared Clifford. I am 18 years of age, still at high school. 
I'm a vision impaired distance runner, middle distance runner. Um, I competed at the 2016 Paralympic Games in the 1500 meters and the 5000 meters. And as of a couple of months ago, I just became a world championship medalist. So probably a brief summary. Yeah, well, you've cut yourself short because you've got so many more achievements than that, but we'll get into all those ones uh, coming <laughs> up. But yeah, that bronze medal over at the World Champs in London, I guess we'll maybe touch on that first. And um, have you come down off that high yet? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it was incredible. I never expected a medal, so I was on a massive high for ages. And I um, I may, may, maybe lacked a bit of motivation in the first week back, but I'm raring to go for the new season already. So Yeah, yeah. I must admit, I watched that race on YouTube so many times. And then when I found out there was a chance to get you on the podcast, I think I watched it another five or six times as well. <laughs> I was just showing it to my partner this morning. That um, that last lap was pretty uh, pretty quick. Yeah, it was, it was such a weird feeling. I was just, it was like I was floating. It was nearly an out-of-body experience. And then the last hundred, like, with my vision, it's sometimes hard to tell what where you're positioned. But it was one of those times in a race where I actually knew where I was and I knew I was running into the bronze medal and it was just, yeah, it was the craziest feeling. Yeah, it's good. Well, let's maybe go back to visually impaired. Could you maybe um, describe for us exactly what that means? Yeah, so obviously there's all different ranges of vision. Uh, there's three categories that are Paralympically classifiable, and I sit in the middle uh, category. So they're ranked on severity. My condition is juvenile macular degeneration. So it affects my central vision. It's got like scar tissue and blistering on the uh, the retina. So um, yeah, it blocks out my central vision. So I can still um, I can still read, though I do um, know a bit of braille. Um, but my peripheral vision is not too bad. Um, so we race against at Paralympics, we race against other people with vision impairment. So the three categories, there's T11, which is totally blind. Uh, they have to run with a guide, obviously. And there's T12, which is um, it's like uh, it's the middle category, basically. And then the third category is T13, and uh, that goes all the way up to legally blind. So you can be legally blind and still be able to see. It's kind of like a, I don't know, it's like a, just a term that they use and in distance running because there's no lanes t12s and which is me and t13s uh we actually run uh, together so yeah yeah right um i can imagine that may have caused some chaos in some races in the past though yeah, yeah. When you uh, chuck a lot of vision impaired guys onto a track, it's always going to be a rough race. Yeah, yeah. And even just like the adrenaline and the fatigue kicking in, like trying to stay upright in a fifteen hundred is hard enough. Let alone um, without those kind of obstacles to battle with while you're doing it. Yeah, it does. It does throw up like its challenges, especially towards the end of like really hard and often longer races. I've pulled out of my first race because of it. Earlier in the summer, in a 5,000 meters, it just um, I didn't feel safe finishing the race, and I don't really like hampering other people's races, and I just felt like I might have been doing that in that race. So I didn't um, have any trouble stepping off the track, but yeah, it does it does present its challenges. Are there times in races where you've got to distinguish between like fatigue from just running super hard, and then that vision fatigue as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, often the fatigue will hit me and then like it'll hit me visually as well so it is just running fatigue like the catalyst is the running but it does affect my vision a little bit so um but yeah often i normally have like the ability to kind of push through it like um because i already have a vision impairment so it's not much different but 
sometimes it's just when it's like a pack on a track it's sometimes harder to navigate yeah right take me back to your um childhood so always diagnosed at three is that correct yeah i was diagnosed at three i mean i probably had it since birth obviously because it's genetic but yeah three yeah and then um you know difficulties at school or how was that kind of first years of primary school yeah it wasn't i mean i didn't ever think I was any different. My parents never gave me any reason to think that I was different. I did wear glasses and I did know a little bit of Braille early on. So, I mean, that was something. But really, like, um, this, you know, all my friends at school, you know, they were really helpful. They actually had this thing where every time they come up to me, they'd introduce who was speaking to me and, and stuff like that. And that um, that helped. And, but then I also played ball sports. Like, I played basketball. I played footy. Like, I played all these sports and I was able to do them. My vision wasn't as bad as, as it is now. Um, so, like, it wasn't really a struggle early on. Yeah, that's awesome. You can be involved in um, in those sports early on as well. And then where did running come into things? Well, I my vision, like, deteriorated um, quite a bit throughout my mid to later primary school years. And I'd done school athletics and school cross country. My first race was, like, school cross country, just, you know, when I came sixth, so I wasn't like I was. Yeah, I was fit, but I was never like a massive standout. And um, when I when my vision deteriorated in those years, it kind of became more apparent that all sports weren't really going to be feasible if I wanted to fulfill my dream of you know playing elite sport or doing elite sport. So I went to a talent search. I mean, I did little athletics for a year, and I did train I mean, once a month in summer. And um, but yeah, I did a talent search in 2012, and I did pretty good at a beep test. And a couple of weeks later, they invited me up to the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra, and that's where I kind of started, you know, looking at getting a coach and starting full time training. Yeah, awesome. Can you remember what you got in the talent um, in the beep test? I think it was like 12 and a half or 13, which um, for a Paralympic talent search was pretty. Yeah, it doesn't normally happen. So I think it was, I think that I impressed them on the day. Yeah, yeah, and not off a lot of training as well. So obviously you had a bit of natural talent there that was just waiting to come out. Yeah, yeah. And I actually did okay on my bike testing and my swimming testing. But at this stage, triathlon wasn't actually a Paralympic sport, and it is now. So um, it might be a bit of luck that it wasn't a sport, and I did end up just focusing on running. Yeah, it might have got sucked in that direction. Yeah. Hey, um, this might be a good opportunity just to let the listeners know just how quick you are because your PBs are pretty amazing. So you might maybe want to list your PBs from 800 through to 10K? Yeah, so um, they were all run kind of, uh, you know, early on this year and I have had a bit more of a coaching program change. I am hoping I take a lot more time off this summer, but currently it's like 155 for 800, 349 for 1500, 831 for 3,000, 1451 for 5,000. And I ran a 10K in 2015. I was 15. I did 3225. Yeah. Pretty amazing times there. I know you're smashing me definitely over 800 and 1500. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I've got a lot of respect for the speed that you've got in your legs. Uh, Well, I mean, I'm not doing marathon training. I wouldn't be able to smash out that that type of stuff at the moment. So, um, yeah, different, different stuff. Oh, yeah, I was training pretty serious for 1,500 back in the day, though, and I'm still four seconds slower than you, so I'm not letting you uh, <laughs> not letting you talk that one down at all. Hey, uh, um, you talked about the different training approach. Well, do you want to maybe unpack that a bit? So it's with Philo Saunders, yeah? Yeah, so I'm now being – my program's being written 
by Philo Saunders. So he's in Canberra. Uh, I'm still uh, working in with my group um, down at Diamond Valley Athletic Club. So um, my coach, uh, he's still my coach as well, Max Bolchin, who's been kind of guiding my program. We've been collaborating together for a couple of years. So he's kind of like guiding me still. But, yeah, the program's been set by Philo. And um, my Ks have kind of gone up a little bit and more specific training sessions um, and like more periodization as well. So it's been good. It's been a bit more. There was a bit more structure in the lead up to London as well, which I did think um, probably helped me get get a medal. Yeah, yeah. Um, how many k's a week are you kind of talking? Um, in the month before London, I was probably between one twenty and one forty. Like I think I topped out at one forty two, and um, at the moment I'm sitting around one thirty. Yeah, and kind of three track sessions a week, pretty traditionally for a track runner. Yeah, yeah. So the Tuesday, the Thursday, and then Saturday, um, I there is a small loop that I know really well that I am able to run at race pace around. Um, but sometimes it was yeah, three tracks. Yeah, and accompanied by a kind of a, not so much a pacer, but always have someone with you when you're running. Um, you on the track, it's um, and it's hard to sometimes find people, especially in my area, that um have you know are kind of quick enough to yeah, go that far with me on the track. Um, my training partner, Tim Logan, he's like, you know, he's got the, he had the potential to go under 350 last summer in 1500, but he got a stress fracture and he's slowly coming back now and he'll get it this year. But so I didn't really have anyone for my race pace training, which is why I had to do a lot of it on the track. Cause obviously a track never changes, you know, hundred bends, hundred straights. So I, um, was yeah, race pace stuff on the track. I'm normally okay solo. But, yeah, a lot of my runs off the track, even though they're not as quick as race pace, I usually run with someone. Or if I'm by myself, I'll run a loop that's really familiar or, you know, you know that I can do without, um, you know, running into any obstacles. Yeah, I was just reading your blog last week, though, about how you spent some time over at Flagstaff. So that must have been a bit of a challenge, not being familiar and at altitude. Yeah. And um, do you want to maybe just uh, unpack a bit of um, that trip? Yeah, so I stayed at um, Falls Creek a couple of times, and Falls Creek is pretty treacherous for a vision-impaired runner, and I'm probably going to start moving away from going there. And I went to Perisher with Philo's group, um, and that they said that the tracks in Flagstaff were similar to Perisher, and they're a bit more wider. They're just more like dirt roads. But the surface in Flagstaff, a lot of the training is actually quite um, accessible for someone with my vision, and I always had someone to run with. So it was an amazing experience. We were staying at like 2,100 metres above sea level, training even higher. I think one of the runs we did was like 2,700. And there was another vision-impaired runner um, over there, Sam Harding. He just missed out on qualifying for London. He actually got the qualifier after the period. Yeah, frustrating. frustrating. And then, um, yeah, we had an amazing group. We had um, Madeline Hills just before her world champs and Dion Kenzie, who um, is one of my best mates. You know, and we were all training for world champs, and he went on to win a world title. But yeah, the runs up there was just—it was incredible, and it really got me motivated for the month at home before London. Yeah, how long did you stay up there for? I was there a month, so it was in May, and um, yeah, it was the first ever time I kind of hit weeks above one twenty k's. Did you just feel super fit coming back down? Yeah, I remember we did two long runs, and I did—I was there for two long runs. Um. And we did them with, like, Jim Wormsley, who's one of the best ultra marathoners in the world. And he was just, you know, ripping out these ridiculous long runs that 
you know, 2,100 meters. I did one at 25K at like 3.55 pace and I was really pushing. And then I came back down to sea level and I did, you know, the same distance at like 3.45 pace, but I felt like I was cruising. So yeah, there was a big difference. Just out for a Sunday jog at 3.45s. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't look at my watch, so I didn't actually know I was going that quick. But it did feel cruisy. Did you take your um, resting heart rate or anything while you're up there just to see how low that got? I never did. No, I wish though. Yeah, and like it was a pretty good training environment. Like you've already mentioned, some of those um, pretty big names and you know some good athletes to be surrounding yourself with. But um, did that? You feel that brought the best out of yourself? Yeah, for sure. Seeing those guys. Um, you know, who are full-time athletes, like, go about their stuff. It does motivate you to do all the one percenters and, you know, prepare for a world championships like an elite athlete. And it kind of gave me an insight into what it takes to be an elite distance runner. Yeah. What are some of the things you learned from them? Uh, just the resting in between sessions. Like, um, you know, you, you train in the morning and then you rest, you know, uh, so, you know good nutrition and then you run again in the afternoon, and it's just about you know, how you rest your body throughout the day. I found that the big one, yeah. So do they just kind of like you're just talking about sitting on the couch and like watching Netflix, or like what is their what's their recovery look like? Well, some of it, it does change. Some of them, um, you know, will go shoot some basketballs. You know, like make sure the legs are loosened up a little bit. There's like a lot of different stretching routines, and I took parts of everyone's like recovery routines that I thought were good, and then. But then some people, yeah, just sit around and I was having like really long naps throughout the day because um, my eyes were getting quite tired up there. But yeah, I was taking naps throughout the day and it was just, um, yeah, like, but everyone else was doing it. So it was interesting how that all works because obviously I train in the morning, train in after school and I don't normally, I'm not normally able to do that. So it was interesting. Yeah, especially when you're getting your VCE sorted, it's um you can't go having naps at one o'clock every afternoon. Nah, nah, it doesn't really work like that. And the altitude, like obviously it's pretty high up, you know, significantly higher than um, Falls Creek. Did you adapt a ride up there? I did. By the end of it, my first run, we did a 10k, and I did four. I think it was 4:15 pace or 4:20 pace, and I um felt okay during the run, but as soon as I stopped, I just felt so sick and really faint and um didn't really like uh, i mean i didn't really want to tell anyone because i thought it was embarrassing that i was this cooked after a 10k at you know a pretty cruisy pace or what should be a pretty cruisy pace and then um my, like my vision just widened out for like half an hour and i was it was pretty scary but you know by three days later i was pretty used to it but it was a lot harder than sea level for sure yeah and i guess when you're in a professional environment like that and there's i know you're running just reading your blog with some big name kind of usa runners a couple of kind of two 12 marathoners um yeah yeah did you feel a bit self-conscious about kind of saying that you're struggling on day one? Oh, definitely definitely especially on a what was supposed to be an easy run like i was like pretty embarrassed by it at first but then i kind of realized that it was just me getting used to it yeah especially with four weeks to go you got plenty of time to adapt up there yeah exactly talk me through the relationship with philo so um that started this year did you say or leading it up to this year yeah so i've known him for maybe two years now because i've been a part of the athletics australia junior high performance group for power athletes and he was like i mean i was the only distance runner on in the group really um but he was the national coach. So whenever I went to Canberra, I kind of joined in with his group. 
And when I made my first World Championships team, he was the team coach, and he coaches um, arm amputee, world re- 1,500-meter world record holder, Michael Roger, and he's guiding um, the other vision impaired guy I said before, Sam Harding, and he's also um, helping out Dion Kenzie, who, who I mentioned before. So he's probably, I mean, he's for sure the best para-distance coach in Australia, maybe even the world. So, um, yeah, I spent, you know, weeks with him on teams and I really liked the way he handled my training in the lead-up to those competitions and um, it just seemed like the perfect match. And it kind of takes uh, what I want to do into perspective as well with my career, which I really like. So, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty uh, credentialed himself as an athlete as well, isn't he? Yeah, I reckon. I mean, he's he's still running. He ran 3.45 in, in Belgium and he reckons there might have even been another second there. So, He's still running really good times, and he let out the national cross country for a little bit there too the other day. Yeah, he's just so consistent; like he just doesn't slow at all with age. Nah, not at all. He's a and he took he took down a park run record over over in London as well. So he's he um he loves it. and he's also one of the wisest people in in distance running in Australia, I reckon as well. Yeah, and even I don't know him personally, but just some of the blogs I've read that he's written, like his scientific knowledge of training and periodization, and um, I think you're in pretty good hands. Yeah, yeah, and that was one of the reasons why I was so, yeah, he was such an attractive option. Yeah. Hey, take me back to the world scale. So the first time you represented Australia was at Doha for the, uh, yeah. the world champs when you were just 16 years old. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, I never expected to qualify for that. Um, and I, you know, ran my first 5,000 metres uh, in qualification in Bendigo, which is a race that I am pretty sure you won. I was there um, that day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I went out in 30 seconds for the first 200, so I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I ended up running 16.21, and it was a qualifier, and I ran another one, 16.15, a couple of weeks later. And then a couple of weeks before the World Champs, we um, realized that, or the IPC, which is the international body, realized that they'd kind of stuffed up the publishing of the um, events, and the, um, the qualifiers changed. So it actually rendered me not qualified. But uh, after a protest, I actually qualified for a world championships without running a world qualifier. I'd never been overseas before, and um, so it was all it all happened really fast. So they changed the time yeah. on you? Yeah. So, I mean, because as I said, there's three vision impaired categories, and initially they had um, the 11s running with the 12s, um, but then they realized they actually had meant the 12s running with the 13s, which makes the race a bit faster. So the qualifiers changed. So it... Um, Caught me off guard a bit, especially in the winter when there's no chance to really go for it again. Yeah, and how was the headspace about that? Like you've set a goal to achieve this standard, you've done it, and then all of a sudden it's like, I oh, know you haven't done it and you're not going overseas. Oh, it was frustrating and it was really stressful. And I actually wouldn't have found out about it until it was too late unless um, one of my mates had have actually, he went onto the website and just checked it, double-checked it, and he realised, and like lucky, lucky he did that. But, yeah, it was... A pretty stressful time, and I kind of, by the end, uh, by the time selection came around, I kind of, you know, uh, realised or resigned myself to the fact that I wouldn't really be going, and I turned my attention to 2016, but I got the call, and I was on the plane, so, yeah. So good, and for 16, and I think we probably need to just make it really obvious that this wasn't World Junior Champs, this was the Open Championships, and you were eight years younger than everyone else in your race. Yeah, the second youngest was eight years, which was crazy, and I've never even been overseas before, so I was way out of my depth, and it was my third 5,000 metres ever, and it was at a world championships, and, um, you know, the field was packed. I was, one, I was, think I was the only English-speaking 
runner, um, Morocco dominate vision impaired distance running, and the world record holder who ran a solo 13.53 at the London Paralympics was in the race. So, and my PB was 16.15. So I was way out of my depth, but going into it, like I didn't have anything to lose, which was good. Yeah, and you finished um, seventh that day. Seventh, yeah, it was like 34, 35 degrees, 9.30 at night in Doha. Um, I stuck with the leaders for like two and a half K, and then I just, I don't remember much of the rest of the race. I was pretty delirious. I think my shoelace came undone, and I finished out in like lane five, not intentionally. And yeah, I'd run a PB, 15.55. I was the only one in the race to run a PB, but yeah, seventh. So I was pretty stoked with that. So good going, isn't it? It's kind of um, it's probably set you up for successful campaigns in the future, like getting that one out of the way and kind of getting the experience done to then be able to yeah. go back to the next ones and um, improve on that. So yeah, how does sure. that look when you're in year ten at school? Everyone else is going to parties on a Saturday night, and you're you're going over to Doha to run in a five k race. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I was a bit of a bit of a celebrity there for a while. Um, yeah, I mean, I never expected it. Like, if you had told me, even like six months before that I wouldn't have believed you so it was yeah it was pretty unexpected and the reason to step up to the 5k at that stage and not pursue the 1500 basically because and I mean because we saw the qualifiers and they did look easy I mean in hindsight they looked too easy which obviously they ended up being too easy but yeah so that's why I did it just because I was more in reach of the 5k than the 1500 yeah and then the next time you represented um yeah, Australia again, the the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, that was um another crazy qualification campaign. I went in with like a PB of four thirteen in the fifteen hundred, and um you know I was kind of told by Athletics Australia, which at the time I mean you can't really blame them. I was a long way off a qualifier. I needed to run four flat for a B qualifier, and they kind of told me, oh Tokyo twenty twenty is where we should be looking. Um, but uh, my first race of the season, I ran a 14-second PB and ran 3.59, so kind of, you know, qualified. And, um, yeah, it was on the plane to a Paralympic Games. I was like 17 years of age, and it was all surreal, yeah. I wanted to sit here for a second, though, but, um, you know, how does that conversation with Athletics Australia work? Did you kind of have to declare that you wanted to run the qualifier and then someone maybe just told you, don't get ahead of yourself kind of thing? Or how? Um... Um, it was more like, I mean, they obviously knew I was – aiming for Rio, the first camp that I'd been on when I was like 12 was actually titled a Road to Rio camp. So my whole running career had kind of been to that point about Rio. So, um, but yeah, with my times and obviously distance running, it's, you, I'm, I'm really young, so they don't want you to get injured, um, you know, overtrain trying to get a qualifier that might be out of reach. So uh, you don't, I didn't have to declare, they just kind of knew and thought the best bet might be to, you know, take the pressure off me and look to the future and look to my longevity rather than, you know, me pushing myself over the edge. Yeah, okay, I get that. And then what do you put that down to, just the training with um, Philo, the the massive improvement in the 1500? Well, I was still with Max Bolton at this stage, so um, with my program, and I think, I mean, I I grew a lot um, in that year, so the big 14 seconds probably just came from, you know, my natural improvement and I'd been to Falls Creek, I think, maybe in time, but my first longest stint. So um, it was a lot of first, really. It was the first time I was training like four times a week as well. So I think, yeah, all that combined. Yeah, and what about the Olympic experience at Rio? 
Yeah, it was insane. I actually did get a niggling little injury. It wasn't too bad in the lead up, so my training wasn't ideal. I spent six weeks water running and cycling, which was frustrating. I did my first run in my first session in Florida, which was the pre camp two weeks before. But then getting into a Paralympic village, it's the most incredible place. There's obviously the diversity of countries, but such a diverse range of, you know, people with disabilities doing amazing things. Um, you know, there's, uh, one of my favorites was, uh, it went viral, like the guy who played table tennis with no arms and just seeing that, um, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. And then also like the shortest person in the village is like 60, 70 centimeters and the tallest is 240 centimeters. So I just loved that there were so many different people and doing what they love to do and that's do sport. Yeah. Um, give me some more details about the village. So like, what did it look like on days where you weren't competing and kind of just relaxing? I guess a lot of the listeners will never get to go to an Olympic village in their life. So maybe share some of those little details that we just miss out on. Yeah. So the village, um, it is, it's all like high rise buildings and the Australian building has massive, um, Australia like banners hanging off, off the balconies and, um, it's a really cool atmosphere. Uh, the Olympics obviously were before us, so um, some people choke and say the Olympics are the test event for the Paralympics. So the village, um, you might have heard, the village had a bit of problems um, in the lead-up to the Olympics, but by the time we got there, everything was kind of fixed. But, um, yeah, so we stay in rooms. Um, there's like an apartment with uh, five individual rooms. So I was rooming with Michael Roger. Um the 1500 meter arm amputee runner and um yeah so there's four apartments on each level um the village has like a 2k loop around it so we did a lot of our runs around there and we were about a k from the dining hall and the dining hall is huge it's like maybe three soccer pitches four soccer pitches kind of that's how big it is um and you just sit wherever you want you can mix with other countries and it's it's yeah it's an incredible place so hard to kind of grasp that in words but yeah yeah, and what about yeah. food and stuff? Like, do they have a big selection of foods? Yeah, yeah. So it's all it's like all different uh, cuisines from around the world. So you can kind of obviously before the race you stick with what you're what you know best, but afterwards you can try food from pretty much anywhere in the world. It's um, it's, yeah, I, I love that that part, that diversity. And a bit of a party kind of culture afterwards. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, the closing ceremony night was um. It was pretty fun. Everyone's celebrating, you know, four years of hard work. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And yourself, and you just mentioned um, Michael Roger. Like, you must be pretty, I guess, uh, similar training partners. Like, your PBs are pretty close together, and he's probably, I think he's about, I think he's pretty similar age to me, nearly kind of coming on 30. So he's probably been a few years ahead of you, but you'd be giving him a, giving him a run for his money. Yeah, I've started. I've started catching him a little bit. There was the race where I ran three forty nine. He actually broke his world record again, three forty six. So, um, and he ran a a good five k up in Canberra at the nationals. I think he came fifth in the Abelbod nationals in fourteen fifteen. So he's come a long way, and he's done three Paralympics now. But um, I can't wait actually to get over to Canberra so that we can yeah train together and then lead up to Tokyo because we're going to be quite similar times by then, like even even closer in time. So it'll be perfect training partner in the lead up to Tokyo and you can smash each other in training and then um come race day you can go in different races classifications different races so hopefully I mean the goal his goal was obviously to win a gold medal and 
so is mine probably for Tokyo. So that would be that'd be insane. Oh, how good would that be? Two golds. That'd be fantastic. And has he been yeah. a bit of a mentor, like taking you under the wing a bit? Yeah, for sure. He's um when I roomed with him in Rio, like that was um pretty good experience. His race didn't go exactly to the way he wanted it to. He he was going for gold as the world record holder and he got bronze. Um, you know, and but he's just one of the most gutsy I've ever met. He had an injury leading into the last World Champs in London, and he he pushed his body to the absolute limit until he had to pull out, unfortunately. But um, yeah, the way he goes about it and his drive is something that I, you know, take a lot from. Yeah, he's a pretty tough racer too. I've come up against him a couple of times, and I think he smashed me every time. He's just so <laughs> so fierce and just aggressive, and he's just um yeah, he leaves everything out there on the track. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's good. So we probably should get to your results in uh, Rio. We kind of just whizzed straight past that, and I was too, <laughs> too focused on what food was at the village. But um, So you got seventh in the 5K and the 1500, so good progression there. Yeah, two sevenths again. I was pretty happy. The 1500 was crazy. There was 30,000, 35,000 in the crowd and two Brazilians in my race, so it was really loud. Um, and I didn't even feel like a race, to be honest. But um, And then to back up the 5K off, no training, I ran – 1506, um, which was a PB, so I was pretty stoked, but it was really just about getting experience. I missed sixth place by 0.01 in the 5K, so nearly so three sevenths at a world stage now after that. Yeah, pretty consistent though, like um, keeping it in that kind of top 10. And like, was that call room and stuff beforehand as well? Like, what was it like? Yeah, so we got for the fifth, the 1500 was probably the, the main one with the big crowd and stuff. and you, there's a warm-up track right outside and you kind of go through your warm-up routine, but the quorum's 50 or 45 minutes beforehand. So you, you only get out your jog. You don't really do any strides or, or drills until you go in the quorum and then you go into the first quorum, which is at the warm-up track, and then they take you underneath the stadium. Um, and there's like a little 100-meter track, maybe 80-meter track under the stadium, and that's where you do your strides. And you, you're in a really confined box for a while with like all your competitors and it's pretty nerve-wracking and then also like the stand is right above you where everyone's sitting and when I think a Brazilian might have won a medal or a gold medal during um when I was in the quorum and the stand was like it was shaking so it was really nerve-wracking I was I was shaking uncontrollably on the start line as well you're 17 as well like so this is the same warm-up track that you say Bolt's been on two weeks before and Mo Farah and yeah like you're a, a student year 11 student from um you know Australia and Melbourne kind of thing and the next thing you know you're under the stadium in Rio doing your strides so how did you mentally prepare for that oh it was I mean I don't think I didn't really have much experience on that stage so I was all over the place. I was. Um, it was probably a good thing because now I've really soaked it up. Like on the start line, I was, I was uh, looking around. I wasn't really focused. I couldn't believe it. I was like, um, I was just so excited to be there. And um, and I actually do remember thinking, think on the first lap, I was, oh, I'm running on the same track as I'm like same part of the track as what Mo Farah and Radisha were like a couple of weeks ago. So. I wasn't really focused, but, yeah, it was an amazing experience. And you're so vulnerable in that situation as well, being, um, you know, it's not like a team sport and someone else can do it for you. Like, I'm sure your coach would have kind of sent you, sent you down the race into the call room and then that's it. It's only you and your legs to get you through the next kind of 45 minutes until race gun and then um, during the race. Yeah, it's a super lonely 40 minutes in the call room before it 
and then eat like it's just you and your thoughts really and um and then when you're out there like it does seem like the whole world is watching like with all the colors and the bright lights and the cameras everywhere like it's yeah it's surreal do you have any um banter with the other athletes um oh not really there was one guy actually in rio Chaz davis from america that i was good mates with and i i stood next to him on the start line and um and when the Brazilian got called out and the crowd went so loud, I, I just said to him, this is crazy, and he's just like, focus, focus. <laughs> but, um, yeah, otherwise, I don't really speak much English. And it'd be pretty similar uh, fields in every race, like are you coming up against the same guys every time? Yeah, I'm starting to get to know them. Um, yeah, so Moroccan, the Moroccan guys um, are dominant in the longer distance, and there's two twin Algerian brothers that dominate more the middle distance and there's a couple of Kenyans that are starting to come through. So yeah, I'm starting to know them. I'm friends with them all on Facebook now. So we're it's pretty funny that you're like we're all friendly, but yeah, when it comes to on the track we're all fierce rivals. Yeah. Till the race is over, it's always interesting, isn't it? Like then you start embracing each other and high five. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to pick up your bag and you're all best mates again. Yeah, exactly. We've all gone on the same journey. Yeah. Hey uh what was the response like after the Paralympics at Rio compared to London, like I know you didn't go to London, but because um, I know, I guess I'm probably asking this question because London seemed to take Paralympics up another level, like just the way that uh, athletes were celebrated there. I remember their campaign, like um, their commercial, yeah. like it was just a real, it seemed to be a really good celebration of Paralympic uh, sport. Yeah, London took it to the next level and London hosted it so well, like, the night sessions were sold out. People, you know, rocked up and they couldn't even get in. Rio, obviously, the crowds were a bit smaller, but um, it was the first time in Australia that, like, a major channel like Channel 7 had um, broadcasted, um, you know, events live. I think I remember in 2008, uh, I might be wrong, but it was like a 30-minute highlights package each night on SBS. And then uh, London, the ABC had, you know, a couple of hours a day of live footage, but then... Rio, um, there was so much live footage in Australia and, you know, people like Kurt Fernley and Dylan Alcott, the wheelchair tennis player, um, they became household names and it was um, it was pretty cool to come back to Australia and see that reaction. Yeah, it's been good and those guys are really standouts, aren't they? Like they don't limit themselves in any way and you can just tell by the way you talk and when you read your website and kind of check your Strava and stuff, it's that same attitude. So I guess you'd probably realise that the perception from the public around people with disability and sport has definitely changed. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of changed from like, um, you know, oh, it's so good to see you, you know, getting out of bed in the morning and participating in life to, well, now we expect it. Like we expect, um, you know, great things and participation in society. Like I think it's, um, it's, it's such a good thing that people expect, you know, um, Instead of always thinking that if uh, someone with a disability does something amazing, it's like inspirational. It's like it's so good to see them out. To well, yeah, it's expected they're human beings as well, and they of course they can do amazing things. Yeah, well, so, yeah. well put, mate. Excellent. Hey, um, I guess next question would be like, who are your role models in sport? Then, like, do you really hold Kurt in that really high? Yeah, I I think Kurt, um, he is so uh, courageous and he loves pushing his body to the limit. So as a distance runner, um, I really, really like that in him. Um, 
he uh, in Rio in the Paralympic marathon, he just went out with Marcel Hoog, who's like dominant in wheelchair racing, and they just you know took it out from the gun pretty much and just pushed their bodies to the absolute limit. And then Kurtz, you know, he's crawled the Kokoda Trek. Um, he's done some incredible things. I think he's even won a Sydney to Hobart yacht race, and he's just always put his body on the line, which I really do like the determination and the courage. Yeah, if you read his book, it's a really good read. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's one of my favorite books for sure. Yeah, no, he's an absolute legend, and even like his um, involvement with like the Indigenous Marathon Project and things yeah. like that. Like he doesn't need to be batting for Indigenous people as well, but he's just just takes everything on board and just represents everything so well. Yeah, exactly. He's um definitely a role model that yeah for everyone. Do you use that as motivation when you – I know because you've won a number of state titles against the able-bodied guys. So do you kind of want to prove people wrong? Yeah, I mean sometimes. I like proving myself wrong sometimes if I have doubts about whether I can match it with those guys. Um, so to get out in races and beat them sometimes, like it's a pretty cool feeling. But I also kind of look at it as I'm a, I'm a runner, so and they're runners as well. And it's whoever crosses the line first. Like um, everyone has the, you know, has their things. Someone might be shorter than the rest of the field, so like they have their ad- added challenge. And I've learned to run with a vision impairment, so I don't know any different. So I just, I, I really just look at it like I'm a runner and they're a runner, and whoever gets to the line first is the winner. So yeah, that's my take on it, really. Yeah, good mentality and headspace to have, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, let's focus on uh, London this year then. So a couple of opportunities to represent Australia on the world stage, but I read somewhere that heading into London 2017 world champs, you were going in with a whole different approach. Yeah, I kind of found found myself in the month leading in that I felt like I was preparing more as an elite athlete. It was kind of, it wasn't for the experience anymore like Dohan Rio was. Like I was going in, with a genuine shot at, you know, I thought maybe top five, but of meddling. And um, earlier in the year, my 349 was like 0.72 seconds off the world record. So that mentality of, you know, I'm not going there to participate anymore. I'm going over there to, you know, really have a crack at a medal. Um, I think that motivated me a lot more in training and just got me more mentally prepared and a bit more professional in my approach. And did you just come up with that approach um by yourself or did someone pull you aside and just say look this isn't for the represent australia kind of experience you can actually win this thing yeah i think it started yeah honestly i think it started in flagstaff like training with all those guys and you know we all got around each other after each session and um you know philo would drop hints every now and then and um dion kenzie he doesn't do it very subtly he like i think after one session he's just like he was so pumped he's like you can medal in at world champs in london and um, and he kept saying, I roomed with him in London, and every day he was saying it to me. And after each session in Flagstaff, like he was, he was saying similar stuff. So I think it just kind of got into my head, and I just started believing it. And when you ran that three forty nine, it must have been just a massive confidence booster, like knowing that only one person in the history has ever gone quicker than you, and you know yeah. that person's going to be in the race. But you kind of have everyone else covered on on paper beforehand. Yeah, exactly, and especially like that the world record was set in Rio for the gold medal like it gave me so much more confidence and I I think if you can go into a championship with that confidence and that not really cockiness but kind of like thinking that you're a bit better than most of the other guys in the race I think that does help in your in the way you race the race yeah why is it I um 
don't have this answer myself, but uh, the 1500 at Rio and then your 1500 in 2017 at London, they seem to run them just go hammers and tongs and it's super fast and championship record every time and close to the world record. Whereas, yeah. you know, traditional 1500 metre finals at major championships are a bit of a walk early. And I know you're in the race that got a bit of media attention where your race at the Paralympics was quicker than the able bodies yeah. 1500 meter final. So why is that? Well, why doesn't that slow running and championship race translate to Paralympics? I think uh, for vision impaired, because well, because um, Michael Roger's category is normally tactical um, with arm amps, and I think it is something to do with the vision impairments. It's it's quite dangerous running tactically. My race in London, um, it did it was slightly tactical first. Um, first lap, sorry, and um, I like it did wind up as it went, and even Rio, even though it was a world record, I think those guys they do come out of Africa, and IPC um don't always sanction a lot of the meets, so they could have run quicker in their careers. I think they might have even been able to run three forty five, three forty six. So um, yeah, it's still hard to re- know if they're actually going all out or not. But the five thousand is where it's probably a lot easier to look at, where it is always hammer and tongs because. People, um, I think racing in a pack for a lot of people is just too risky. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, so in the race, you're standing on the start line at London and you're feeling pretty confident. And when things started to pick up, and I'll, I'll put the link to the, the YouTube video in the show notes, you kind of got dropped a bit with kind of 500 meters to go, but you, your fight was huge and you just kept coming all the way through that last 500. Yeah, I was... I mean, I uh, didn't realize how far back I was actually when I've looked at the race video. I think I was eight with 500 to go and I you know, moved into seventh just after that and then fifth in the ba- at the barrel and I stayed in fifth the most of the last lap and then shot it into the bronze medal with 100 to go. But throughout the whole race, it was just like this weird calmness, like I'd done all the hard work. This was just the, well, weird to say, but it's kind of like the easy bit at the end. And, um, yeah, I think I didn't really think much actually in the race and it was kind of like all instinctual. And I've looked at the race and one of the Kenyan guys, um, he like gapped the field at one stage. I didn't even realize that it happened. Like I couldn't see that. And, um, but I just kind of trusted that it would all come together. And if I put in a good last 200 meters, I'd be able to beat seventh, which was really my um, probably modest aim because I'd come seventh three times. It's um I've got to remind myself that I'm talking to an eighteen year old. Like that kind of knowledge around race tactics and confidence and calmness in a race is pretty amazing to have at your age. Yeah, I, I yeah, I don't know where I've kind of learned it from. I think just from um, you know, working with guys that have been on that stage, um, like like Michael Roger and, and Dion and, and those guys and just learning how they handle it. And I did see a sports psychologist at the Victorian Institute of Sport in the lead up, and he kind of gave me cues on how to just get in your zone and things like that. So I have had access to some pretty um pretty important people there. Yeah, anything you share with the listeners about like getting into your zone? What works for you? I think the the big thing I learned after Rio was uh, don't think about the outcome, uh, just think about the process. And I found that really good. Like the outcome, it'll handle itself, but you've just got to think about what you can do in that moment. So there was no point standing on the start line and stressing about, oh, am I going to am I gonna beat seventh? Am I going to come third? 
all I was thinking about was what do I have to do to get the best out of myself right now? And that was to, you know, execute a race plan, which was to sit and as long as I could and just hang with the leaders as long as I could. I've just finished reading a uh, sports psychology book, which said exactly that this afternoon, actually. It was, um, we're doing a podcast, The Road to Berlin Boys, doing one on mental training tonight. And um, yeah, that was a big thing in it, like focusing on the process and not the outcome, because otherwise you just stress yourself and negative self-talk comes in if if you're not working towards that outcome. But if you're working on that process, it's a bit easy to think about. Yeah, yeah. It was something that it's so simple, but it just changed my whole approach to my training and my racing. And it really helps just um, being present and stuff as well. Like you're not thinking about what happened last lap or you're not thinking about the two laps to come. Like you really just focus in the in the moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a good skill. Um, talk to me about what happened when you come back. So you come back with a bronze medal and has your world changed a bit? Oh, a little bit, yeah. I, um, it's now good when I do my talks at primary schools and high schools and different um, different you know, place organizations. Now I've got a medal to show around, which is really cool. And, um, yeah, at school, um, I'm the school captain now, so people are starting to get used to it. I don't know if they're getting sick of me yet, but they're starting to get used to me going overseas and racing. And But, yeah, it's 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 a cool thing, and it just um, it probably has changed my confidence in training and my goals for the future in the fact that now um, I'm stoked with that bronze medal, but I'm just hungry for, for more success. Yeah, good mentality to have. Um, school captain, talk me through that. Yeah. Voted so, on? Um, sorry? Voted on by your peers? Yeah, vote, voted on by my peers. I think I was quite lucky that uh, they actually, the vote happened about a month after I got back from Rio. It's still fresh in everyone's mind, so I think that might have helped me out a little bit. But, but yeah, I, I'm doing three years of VCE, so three years of year 11 and 12. So this is my... This is what should be my last year of high school, but I'm actually coming back. So I think I might be the first person in history to be school captain but have to come back for school next year. Yeah, but you'll get voted in for two years, won't you? <laughs> I don't know if I'll do it again, but it's been um, it's been a good experience for sure. Double term as school captain. There's not too many Olympians in uh, in year 12 that have the opportunity <laughs> to get voted in, I wouldn't expect. Yeah. You'd be a bit unlucky if there was another one you were going up against. Yeah, I know, yeah, two from the one school, that'd be something special. Yeah, obviously, though, that leadership and you just kind of said doing speeches and, like, giving back to the community is obviously important to you? Yeah, definitely. I um, I love sharing kind of my story and um, if that can help someone else believe in themselves a bit more, like, yeah, that's awesome. And even your blog, like, it's super well-written and easy to understand and really... um. You just want to keep scrolling down. I was actually, when I read it last weekend, I was disappointed there was only two posts on there because I wanted to go back and kind of tap into a few more, but I'm sure there's going to be more that come up over the next few months and years. Yeah, yeah. I only started this website after um, Flagstaff, so um, hopefully I keep updating it. I'm sure I will, so yeah. yeah. I'll put that in the show notes as well for all the listeners to check Perfect. out. I'm sure they'll, sure they'll get a bit of entertainment out of that. So what's um, going forward, mate? Because you said you're hungry and yet there's definitely no post-race depression by the sounds of you. It's um, pretty motivating to go forward. So what's coming up next? Yeah, so um, my next race, um, not not targeting it specifically, but I'm excited about it, is the Melbourne 10K on October 15. Um, just because I've never really run a road race in a while and I haven't um, like raced it properly and I haven't uh, – 
done a 10k in a while. I haven't really done a fun run, so it will be a lot of firsts, and it's also going to be the first time I trial guide running in a race, just because obviously a road race is a bit harder to see than um, on the track because different corners and the road's a lot wider, so I can't really see the other side of the road. Um, and going, you know, three minutes to three minute 10 pace, like it's you don't have much time to react. So it's going to be interesting with um with how the guide running works out. So I'm excited for that. So they'll be attached to you, and you got some pretty um, handy guys signed up to help you out. Yeah, I've, I searched around for ages. I asked, um, I asked, uh, I asked was Liam Adams, but he's obviously running Berlin, I think, with with you. Yep. And um, then, Harris, you know, because I need kind of guys that are elite runners themselves. It's hard to fit in with people's programs, but I managed to. I managed to get Luke Matthews, who's a Rio Olympian, um, 800 and 1500 meters, uh, to, I got him on board. So he's down to guide me um, for maybe the full 10K, but there's a chance that he might do 5K and then swap with Matthew Clark, who's a handy runner as well, sub uh, 5K runner and 30-minute 10K runner. It's pretty good when you got two, or you got an Olympian and a pretty good state representative in Matthew Clark um, sharing a role when you're going to do the whole 10K. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it'll be interesting. It's never, I don't think it's ever happened in um in Australia before at the kind of the front end of fields like this. So it'll be interesting to see how it all works out with the guide swapping. And have you got a time picked out? You aiming for? Oh, I'm not really sure. I'd I'd love to go 30 minutes something. Um, depends really on conditions because some years it's one in 30 minutes something, or some years it's one in well under 30. So I don't really know. I just want to make sure I run quicker than when I was 15. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of the course. They go up, still go up past the shrine there, or down the shrine where? Oh, I'm not really sure. I haven't. I need to have a look. I haven't actually had a proper good look at it. Oh, good luck for that. What else is going forward? So next world, no Olympics, the Com Games. How does that work? Um, yeah. So there's uh, with para athletics, they only choose I think seven or eight para events for the Commonwealth Games, and the only one in my category is the hundred meters, and I think I would have to run like eleven point three, which is beyond me, definitely. Um, but World Juniors able-bodied is on in 2018, and the qualifier is definitely within my reach. It's 348 flat. Well, normally 348 flat. I don't know if they've published this year's ones, but it has been for the last couple. And I think I've definitely got that within my reach, but so do a lot of other guys. So it'll be um, it'll be a big race at nationals this year for those two spots to World Juniors. But that'll be over 1500 meters, I think. So they can only um, take two. Yeah, two. I think the winner at Nationals is automatic if they have the qualifier, and then the second spot is discretionary. Yeah, that's pretty motivating, though, isn't it? Like, it'd be how amazing would that be if you qualified for the able bodies ones? Yeah, uh, it would be incredible. I'd be the, I mean, I'm 99% sure I'd be the first person to ever do it. So that that's cool in itself. But I also um, think with my vision, I don't know how much longer, especially as the quicker I get, I'll be able to, you know, race at this speed solo. So it might be, you know, my only ever chance to make an able-bodied Australian team, which would which would be special, yeah. Be super special, mate. And then um, that world record's got to be a chance to go, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, if I get the qualifiers, the world record goes too because that's um, pretty much the same time. So it'd be cool to, cool to get that out, which would mean that uh, the three – uh, Dion, Michael Roger, and myself would all be world record holders. So I think that would uh, make Australia pretty dominant on the para distance scene. Yeah, pretty good stable, isn't it? 
Yeah, I reckon it's exciting. It's exciting for Tokyo. Those boys can tow you through too. Get you to twelve hundred, and you could light up the track the last three hundred. Get the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know where I'll have a shot at it, but um, yeah, definitely this summer. Nice fast track up in Canberra too, isn't it? Yeah, so I'll be spending some time up in Canberra in January, just getting uh, used to the surrounds. And um, yeah, Canberra does have a good track. I have run a few PBs there before. Yeah, and you spoke about your eyesight deteriorating as you go, well, as you get older and as you go faster. So what's running, I guess, going to look for you like for you in 10 years' time? Yeah, it, I don't really know. Like my vision may not deteriorate, and I mean, it, there's a good chance that it, it may not. But um, yeah, just the quicker I get and the longer distances I run, obviously, the quicker I get, it's probably harder to react and make decisions and things like that. Uh, and then longer races, more fatigue. But I think I will be looking at using a guide runner, like world champs and Paralympic runners, or, or two, um, just tactically as well, because so that I don't miss any moves that happen off off the front that I might not see. But um, yeah, ten years down the track, long term, I love, um, I love like, you know, the history and stuff about the marathon. So I'd love to do that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I definitely don't think I'd be able to do it solo. But um, yeah, so guide running is going to be something that. It's going to be difficult to find people, but, yeah, I think it's going to be a part of my running in 10 years. Mate, hit me up for sure. Yeah, I would love to run a marathon with <laughs> you. There you go. It'll be good. I think in good the incentive is uh, Paralympics and world champs as well. So that's an added incentive. Yeah, I was just talking to someone the other day, like just that, I guess because running such a – solo sport and even brad croak and i went and paced the lead female up at the gold coast the 35k and just knowing that you're running for more than yourself and you kind of got a bit of a role to do it actually is really strange because we're so used to running just thinking about ourselves and doing it for ourselves that it um yeah yeah it really brings out another aspect of running yeah it's really good and i think i've never i mean i have experienced it as an individual sport but a lot of the time i've had guys around me supporting me on runs and and things like that and i really do love that team kind of feel and um yeah i mean for a marathon you're allowed four guides that do kind of 10k each so um that would be a pretty pretty awesome feeling we're having a team around you like that all working towards the same goal yeah just a dream team (laughs) yeah just get all the all the top australian marathon runners it'd be pretty pretty awesome that'd be pretty cool and i know like races like london marathon actually have a separate category don't they like they send them off earlier and um you're kind of in your own yeah. race and like a big city marathon like that i'm not sure do the other big city ones have like a category there not not as of now except for the wheelchairs but um london it's like uh they call it the ipc marathon world cup because they don't do it at world champs anymore because it's hard to close down the end but um, they do it at Paralympic Games, obviously, but yeah, so it's like our our World Championships each year, and it's it's pretty cool the fact that you can kind of be winning a London Marathon race. Like that's another reason why I'm so so keen to maybe you know one day have a good good crack at a marathon. Yeah, and they go quite fast as well. Like you see them, I think the lead females just start to catch them towards the end, and there's guys running yeah. like two seventeen and stuff, isn't it? Two sixteen. Yeah. Well, that guy that um, I mentioned. Briefly earlier, he ran like 13.50 solo at London Paralympics to win the 5,000. Well, in Rio, um, he soloed like a 2.17 marathon. And I think he's done another solo one in London, as you said. But And that was off the back of running in the 1,505K in Rio as well. So he's um, like there are guys running, you know, elite, elite level times. 
Yeah, it's a pretty amazing. And um, what are you thinking outside of school? So you'll finish VCE at the end of next year and career-wise? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I'll definitely probably be going to uni. It looks like as of now that I'll be, you know, going up to Canberra to train with Philo's group um, directly. Uh, yeah, uni-wise, like, I mean, I do like my writing and I'm doing kind of humanities-based subjects at the moment at school, like legal studies and literature and philosophy, things like that. So I'm not really sure course-wise or job-wise, but, yeah, something in that area, I'd, I'd say. Plenty of options there, mate. I reckon just by reading your blog and stuff that you'll find um, find work there, no worries at all, with the public speaking and the inspirational story. Someone will snap you up pretty quick. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Hey, what I do at the end of every conversation is I ask the guests if they've got a mantra or a philosophy or a quote that they try to live by or kind of, uh, you know, go towards in times of need. Yeah. Have you got anything? Yeah, I um, I'd love, obviously... As I said, my, my hero's Kurt Fernley, just the way he can push himself. So I love when I train the feeling of, um, you know, pain and pushing my body to the limit, mainly probably because when I run, I don't really see the scenery. So it's more in the feeling of running. And I really love that feel of pushing myself. So just basically, um, it, you know, love love suffering and love the pain of it and just really embrace, embrace it. It's not really a quote, but I just um, – yeah, when I'm running a hard rep and it's really hurting, I just, you know, just embrace suffering. I think there was a quote from Percy Seri that I've read somewhere, but I don't actually have it, you know, but it's something like embrace suffering and and walk towards it and stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty inspirational here and you say words like that. It's um, it's something every runner, doesn't matter really your ability, but we all suffer the same come race day if you're, you know, just thinking about the marathon, if you're running a two-hour 10 marathon or a four-hour 10 marathon, the suffering's there. And exactly. um, the way you can tackle and survive and kind of suffer through the suffering in a way, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And um, I think that's what all makes us, you know, tough runners. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that'll wear all crazy and just love suffering every <laughs> two or three times a week. It's, uh, yeah. it's quite interesting. Hey, mate, where can people follow your journey online? Have you got some handles or some websites or your Strava or blog that you can kind of give us some details for? Yeah, yeah. So my blog is um, jaredclifford.com. My Instagram and Twitter is at jaredclifford. And I'm on Strava. Um, I love Strava. I love seeing what everyone's doing. So, um, yeah, that's probably the best points of, yeah, contact as well. Shoot me a message. Um, if you have any other questions, no question is, uh, yeah, if you're curious about anything, my vision, my running, anything, yeah, shoot me a question. Mate, I think the listeners are really going to love this conversation and just be really appreciative of your time today and um just how motivating and kind of yeah, you can just hear your energy levels through through the conversation and um yeah it's definitely inspired me to really push myself to the most so thanks for giving up a bit of your time and um yeah we'll keep touching base in the future and yeah as i said really appreciate giving up some of your time for for free today to kind of inspire the listeners out there yeah no worries at all thanks for having me no dramas at all mate thanks for that that hope you enjoyed that conversation with jared clifford what an absolute legend i am 
yeah, I'm really looking forward to catching him in person because I haven't really had much to do with him in person and it'd be great to say good day in person and yeah, I'd absolutely love the opportunity to pace him in one of those marathons. I hope he was taking me serious because uh, what a good role and a bit of camaraderie that would be in um, helping someone achieve their goal in such a brutal event that goes for so long. It'd be quite a journey out there running a marathon in that kind of capacity in that role, I think. Be good. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, we had a bit of uh, sound quality issues there. I hope it didn't annoy you too much. I tried to fix it, but I'm a bit short on time. I'm uh, off to Europe tomorrow, getting ready for Berlin. And it was one of those things that was like, I can get this show out at kind of eight or nine out of 10 quality, or I can um, spend an hour trying to get it 10 out of 10 quality. So please forgive me if, um, yeah, that was not the quality you were expecting. Thanks for tuning in again. And I'll talk to you the next time I'll talk to you. I reckon I'll be located in Europe, in Berlin. Here we go. Bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com